Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Last week on this program, we spoke with Pennsylvania's Auditor General Eugene DePasquale, who told us an audit of the Pennsylvania Department of Health and how the department monitored nursing homes indicates nursing home staffing was not reviewed and that anonymous complaints were not acted on for three years. Then Penn Live reporters found that the nursing homes that there were nursing homes that may have been negligent in deaths of a resident that weren't being penalized very often or very seriously. Today we hear from the nursing homes themselves. Now, I just kind of summarize, touch the surface of some of the findings of the Auditor General and Penn Live. But joining us today is Ron Barth, who is the president and CEO of Leading Edge Pennsylvania. Mr. Barth, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. And you represent nonprofit nursing facilities, correct? That's correct. Uh, it's more than just nursing facilities, but nursing facilities are part of the uh, continuum. Our members are all not-for-profit. They provide uh, a variety of services for older adults, including nursing facilities, post-acute, uh, continuing care retirement communities, personal care, assisted living, housing with services, as I said, the full continuum. Mm. Something I've noticed that uh, you you wrote uh, an email to me, um, sent me some information, and just in your first answer here, you refer to nursing facilities rather than nursing homes. Is there a difference? I suppose not. Uh, I think the new uh, term probably is nursing facilities because, honestly, they're nobody's home, okay? They should be considered anybody's home. They're a healthcare facility. The idea of being in a nursing facility is to, you know, be stabilized, to be rehabilitated, and hopefully move to a lesser, uh, less intensive type of, of service or perhaps back home. And that does make a lot of sense. You called into the show last week when we had uh, the two Penn Live reporters on uh, who were talking about the series, the investigation that they had done. And you said that. Uh, what the Auditor General had done and what Penn Live had done last week had happened before. Now, the findings, they did have some specific findings, and we'll talk a little bit about that in just a moment. But you said that this has happened before and nothing has really changed. What did you mean by that? I mean that uh, every three, four, five years, there's going to be some sort of story there's going to be some sort of audit. There's going to be some sort of investigation that's going to show that there are bad facilities. And you know what? Bad facilities exist. Nobody should be denying that. Unfortunately, what we never do is really get into the complex issues of how we can really resolve this problem. Instead, uh, we'll go through what I consider the usual suspects. Well, let's increase regulations. Let's increase fines. And the fact of the matter is we still end up having these bad facilities. And we're going to talk about uh, some of the things that have been recommended or some of the solutions we've heard over the years, and you have a different opinion on it. By the way, if you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. If you want to send an email with a question or comment, smarttalk at org. That is the number to call. But th let's talk a little bit about some of those findings, the major findings. The reviews of staffing were not being conducted as required by the Department of health. Anonymous complaints weren't being acted upon by the health department and that facilities were not being held truly accountable for resident deaths where a facility may have been negligent. Do you have an issue with those findings? Not particularly. I'm sure all of that existed. Uh, I guess what I would say is why do we continue to allow things like that to exist? 
and the current system just doesn't really uh, become effective in stopping this. There are bad facilities. Why do we allow them to continue to exist? Why don't we close some of them down? Why don't we use our survey uh, resources uh, to be in there much more often and perhaps not as often as uh, in facilities that traditionally do a good job? In other words, put your resources where the problems are. And that's one of your major recommendations is that the survey system, for those who weren't tuned in last week, uh, nursing homes, when we said that the Department of Health wasn't reviewing staffing, that was one aspect of it, as often as was required. Uh, talk about that survey system as it is now and what do you think would be a better solution, a better way to do it? The survey system, the way it is now, treats facilities basically the same. Every 12 to 15 months, a team of four or five, maybe even six surveyors will come into a facility, spend three, four, five days at that facility. What they will do is then go around and check if the facility is complying with, and I use the word advisedly, literally thousands of regulations. Um, Then they write deficiencies. And quite frankly, Uh, They can write a lot of deficiencies or they can write a few deficiencies because there is no facility in existence that can be in 100% compliance 100% of the time of uh, all of these regulations. So it's up to the surveyor. If they want to write a lot of deficiencies, they can. If they want to write fewer deficiencies, they can. But it really basically looks on process. What it doesn't focus on is the outcomes. In other words, you can go into a facility and start uh, taking a random uh, sample of residents. Start looking at the residents. Is there unexplained weight loss? Are there bowel, unexplained bowel and bladder issues? Is there unexplained pain? Is uh, uh, the resident becoming more confused with uh, uh, no apparent cause? Those are the type of things that we should be looking at and assume that if the outcomes are okay, that probably the bulk of the regulations are being met. However, if you see problems, if the surveyors see problems, get in there, do a major investigation, and stay there. Keep coming back two times a week, three times a month, whatever it takes until you are uh, convinced that the problem has been uh, eradicated. Instead, uh, we spend 80% of our time uh, on the 80% of the facilities that probably are not uh, doing uh, that bad of a job, and only 20% of the time of the 20% of the facilities that we know really have problems. Let's switch that. 20% of the time on the 80% that are basically doing a decent job and 80% of the time of those really bad nursing facilities. And you know what? If they still don't improve, close them down. How do you do that? How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, you do, are they, they're licensed. They're licensed, but right. you're saying that you reach a certain number of deficiencies or... If you can't correct, if you refuse to uh, Im- improve, pull the license. Mm-hmm. So basically, the death penalty, if uh, if you want to refer to it that way. Yes. Okay. Sometimes, if you will, and I don't want to get into death penalty, but sometimes you have to make the ultimate decision that says this facility is not going to improve. They don't care about the residents. 
it, they need to close. Now, you said that uh, there literally are thousands of regulations, so and that uh, there's not a nursing facility out there that meets 100% of those regulations. 100% of the time. 100% of the time. So, you know, give me an example of some of the deficiencies. I mean, are, are they all given equal weight? For example, if there's something that where a resident could be in danger uh, or something that would have a negative impact on their health as compared to say something in the cafeteria or uh, some type of activity that they're not doing. Yes, that that's true. They are supposed to look at the uh, severity, and they do. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. I can come up with all sorts of deficiencies for a facility. They may be very, very minor, or they could be very, very major. And I will uh, say that uh, the survey system is to uh, uh, look at those. But when you look at that five-star rating, a lot of it is just based on the number of deficiencies. Okay, so five-star, you're talking about how nursing facilities are graded. Are graded uh, through the federal five-star progr- uh, program, and you you had quite a bit of discussion about that last week right. as well. Right, yeah, and, and talk about that because you provided a chart to me that showed different uh, regions of the state and where nursing facilities uh, were, how they were graded in some of these regions. One in particular, or actually two regions that you compared, Scranton and the Lehigh Valley. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Well, as you know, they border. Right. Uh, in the Scranton area, 80% of the facilities were only one or two stars, which is people consider the worst. In Lehigh Valley, there was zero one-star facilities, and I forget the exact number, but it was 7% were, uh, were two stars. Now, those are two bordering regions. It's hard to believe that uh, the quality of care in facilities that border uh, are, is that uh, disparate. So it really gets down to how many deficiencies are being issued. Scranton field office apparently decides that they are a bit more uh, rigorous in uh, uh, issuing deficiencies. Uh, apparently, Leaf Eye Valley had a different philosophy. That's not to say that uh, the surveyors were necessarily wrong. It's just a different philosophy. But what it is showing is that there's inconsistency. And if there's inconsistency on how these are being applied, uh, to use that as a basis of your rating system uh, makes it completely unreliable as far as I'm concerned. What you're describing sounds like, uh, when when it comes to the surveyors, that there's a great deal of latitude and as far as judgment goes and humans, you know, people making the judgments. Absolutely. Uh, and again, I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. It's just a different way of viewing things, but it's inconsistent. And besides that, I still maintain that we keep looking at this process all the time when we should be looking at the outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, talk a little bit more about that, looking at the outcomes. When you said that the picking uh, some uh, a few residents at random, any number that uh, you would have in mind? Uh, actually, no. I would think that uh, you know experts could take a look, uh, statisticians, what would be a good uh, statistical uh, number uh, to pick depending upon the size of the facility. 
Uh, I'm also saying this, though. You don't, you know, right now we just have one survey a year, essentially, except for complaints. And by the way, I wouldn't change, you know, complaint investigations. Which, and that's one of the things that uh, Penn Life, or excuse me, the Auditor General right, found right. was that uh, for three years the health department was not acting upon complaints, anonymous complaints. But if you did what I'm saying, you could go to all facilities two or three times a year and just look at the outcomes and make sure uh, that things are, are being maintained. Again, the thing is, put your resources where the problems are. You know, I know you can't speak for the health department, but um, obviously, uh, state government, uh, have, you know, they have to, the dollars are tight, put it that mm-hmm. way. And uh, one of the things that uh, I think the Auditor General mentioned is that we may not have enough surveyors. We may not have enough inspectors out there. If they were to take on what you're suggesting here, would they have the people? Yes. As a matter of fact, I think they would be using their resources better. Will they have enough people? That's always, uh, you know, subjective as well. But given what they have, if they can spend most of their time in the poorly performing facilities and less time in the uh, facilities that are doing an adequate job, they can uh, utilize their resources more effectively, more efficiently. One thing our audience should know is that uh, you've been in this field for a long time now. We were just talking about uh, how long we've been in our current positions, but uh, (laughs) it went quicker than we thought. But uh, your background is not just with nursing facilities. And uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that because it shows that you have seen this from both sides. Yes. uh, Actually, my my history has been mostly uh, long-term care, but a variety of positions, including, I might add, back in Illinois, I was the associate director of the Illinois Department of Public Health, and I was uh, the person responsible for the survey and certification of all healthcare facilities, including nursing facilities, also including hospitals and other types of facilities. So I know uh, the frustrations that the Department of Health has. I know uh, how difficult the job is of a surveyor. I'm really on their side. I would like them to have a system that allows them to do their job more effectively. It's been a while since you've been in Illinois, but uh, looking back, how does Pennsylvania compare to Illinois in that what we do here? Well, you're right. It has been a, a while. You and I talked. We've both been in our jobs apparently 25 That's years. Right. So it's been a, a while, but uh, the this. The same problem exists in Pennsylvania as it did in Illinois, and that is you have to follow the dictates of the federal government and how you survey. Mm. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is Ron Barth, president and CEO of Leading Edge PA. We're talking about nursing home facilities. Last week, we had the Auditor General on the program, some of his findings with the Department of Health and Nursing Home Inspections and uh, some of the the ways that the the Department of Health deals with nursing homes. Also, we had uh, Penn Live reporters who did a six-month investigation into some of their findings into nursing facilities across the state. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Something you said, Mr. Barth, just before we went away to the break is that any kind of changes would have to be made at the federal level. 
Now, after hearing that, that doesn't make me real optimistic that anything, any major changes could be made. I mean, I gave you the example. If Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump sat down here and I said, let's talk about, uh, you know, some some changes we can make to uh, help make nursing facilities better. They both would probably say, huh? And, and and that's understandable. They have a lot of things on their mind. Bottom line is, this doesn't sound like something that would be at the top of the list for, for the federal government. Well, it wouldn't be at the top of the list probably for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. It should be more towards the top of the list for uh, the people at the Health and Human Services uh, and CMS. Uh, you're right. It's difficult to get the federal government to change. That's why uh, our National Association is now pushing Congress to fund a study with the Institute of Health, uh, or Institute of Medicine, I'm sorry, uh, IOM, to look at the survey system and see, is it effective, is it not effective, and what changes can be made. So we're hopeful that uh, we may be able to make some progress in this area, but I wouldn't uh, disagree with you at all. Uh, it's it's difficult to move the federal government. There's a lot of inertia. State has to follow the Fed's lead. The state has to follow the Fed's lead when it comes to surveying because 98% of facilities are certified for Medicaid and Medicare. And since that's a federal program, both of those are federal programs, uh, you have to follow the state. Uh, you, I'm sorry, you have to follow the federal uh, guidelines. In both the Auditor General's report and Penn Live's uh, series, staffing was a real issue. Mm-hmm. The Auditor General said that they found that the health department was not reviewing staffing. Um, you know, we know that staffing can be an issue uh, because many people who work in nursing facilities are not well paid. There's a high turnover rate. Um, but one of the things that you say is that quantity the number of people on staff is not as important as quality. Explain that. I think uh, actually that's true in many fields. Okay, it's the quality, not necessarily the quantity. What I'm saying is that, yes, staffing is essential to quality care. There is nothing that is more has more direct impact on quality care than good staffing. I am saying, though, that uh, calls for an increased staffing ratio may not solve the problem. It really gets down to uh, the leadership, the management, uh, the training of the staff, the longevity of the staff. You want to know what one of the biggest problems are, I think, in nursing facilities is turnover. And why is there turnover? Well, again, it gets complex. It's a very, very hard job. It pays very low. Uh, Why does it pay low? Because society doesn't really want to pay for the cost of nursing facilities. We have a uh, Medicaid program that uh, pays between 20 and $25 a day uh, less than the actual cost of care. What happens? Facilities have to charge the private-paying facil- uh, private uh, residents more. What happens? They run out of money quicker. They go on to Medicaid. Less money is being uh, uh, allowed for staffing. And this problem just keeps keeps snowballing and snowballing and snowballing. Nursing care is expensive, though. It is. I mean, uh, you're looking. What what is the average? Do you know what the average is for a resident in a nonprofit facility? A private pay resident would pay between nine and ten thousand dollars a month. A month. Okay. Now, I will say this: now we are being able to move people out of nursing facilities much more quickly, 
and get them into assisted living or personal care or housing with services. See, that's the problem. If you have money and you can afford those type of services, alternatives exist. If you are low income and you need 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week services, you only have one option, and that's nursing facilities. What percentage of, of residents pay on their own they, that they don't use Medicaid? About 30%. Yeah, so it's not high. No. And you actually say that uh, our present system kind of encourages people to go on Medicaid, or they have no choice after a certain amount of time, well, once, the, once their money's depleted. Honestly, there's not many people that can afford nine to $10,000 a month for very, uh, for very long, so they do deplete their resources. And again, uh, I didn't even mention this in the information I sent you, but we also have the problem of uh, so-called uh, elder law attorneys that actually uh, utilize legal loopholes but get people qualified for Medicaid that really uh, are not exactly what uh, was intended for the Medicaid program. Like in what way? Uh, they will, uh, again, legally uh, shield or shelter assets to make uh, these people appear under the law uh, less wealthy than what they are, and therefore then they qualify for the Medicaid program. If it's legal. It's legal. Okay. Well, I guess you look at that But as what a... I'm saying is legal, but it isn't what the intent was. This was supposed to be a program for low income. It just exacerbates this, the the. Uh, problem because Medicaid doesn't cover the cost of care. The more people that are being cared for where the cost of care is not being uh, met, the less revenue facilities have to do such things as increased staffing or, more importantly, actually paying uh, uh, their employees uh, higher wages to help retain them. That's why we have such a high turnover. You also say, though, that uh, you recommend that uh, personal care homes and assisted living facilities, that they should, that Medicaid should be able to uh, pay for those as well. Absolutely. That would really save the state a lot of money and also allow people to get services that are probably uh, better suited to their needs. Uh, we have a study that shows that the state could save uh, close to $100 million, and that would be the federal match as well as the state match, so say uh, $55 million of state money, uh, by just uh, paying uh, Medicaid for uh, assisted living, uh, utilizing uh, just the residents that we say are the absolute lowest uh, uh, care needs in nursing facilities. Explain that a little bit. Are you saying that there are people who are in nursing facilities now that maybe shouldn't be, uh, but still would be getting care if they were in uh, assisted living or a, a personal care? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And the only reason they're in nursing facilities is because they need 24-hour, seven-day-a-week supervision, perhaps assistance, but uh, they are low-income. They can't afford the services, so they go on Medicaid, and the only place that they can go then is a nursing facility. Let's take a phone call here from Eric in York. Eric, you're on the air. Hi, thanks. Um, I called before about uh, this subject when we had uh, uh, Eugene Pasquale on, and uh, I, like I said, it's near and dear to my heart. Um, um, I was just wondering, it seems to me that um, there's a lot of incentive for um, uh, for the regulators to point out their problems, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of incentives 
for a follow through the problem, um, like saying, okay, well, in the system we have now, we can point out, uh, like you made the comparison between um, Sprint and uh, um, Lehigh Valley, uh, that there were, you know, a big discrepancy in the amount of uh, violations that, that, that were found, but I haven't heard a lot about the enforcement of those violations and what the follow-through could be. Um, besides the, um, the manpower issue that uh, uh, the representative from the nonprofits talked about, um, I'm just wondering from the industry uh, what uh, they thought could be doing about it so we could get rid of bad actors in okay. this uh, uh, industry. Uh, thank, thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. And, you know, one of the things that I did appreciate about uh, w the document that you sent to me, Ron, was that uh, all these things are kind of interrelated. Mm -hmm. And penalties, uh, the, one of the, the gist of the Penn Live series was that you know, they looked at uh, deaths where the nursing facilities may have contributed or may have been negligent and that the penalties were very small. Y you say that just increasing a dollar amount, a, a, a fine, and a penalty is not necessarily going to stop these things from happening, right? Yes, basically. Now, I think penalties have their, their place. Well, yeah, you got to okay. have penalties. I, I'm not saying, you know, get rid of the penalties, but what I'm saying is it's not so simple to say, well, increase the fines and these problems will uh, uh, stop. There are some facilities, some corporations that uh, say, here's the revenue that I have. Uh, we're going to exist within this revenue and, and uh, you know, we'll adjust the staff downwards if we need to. We'll adjust everything downwards, but we have to, you know, have this certain amount of return on investment and uh, this is only the revenue that we have. And they figure the fines are just a cost of doing business. You have other facilities that are really trying to do a good job. Uh, they may be slipping up. Uh, they may not have the resources. You find them, you're just exacerbating the situation again because they have less money uh, to pay staff. They have less money to correct these problems. It really is a complex, complex uh, situation. It's very interrelated. But I can tell you funding is part of it. The way that we uh, actually survey facilities is part of it. The way that we staff facilities is certainly part of that. Uh, I wish we had a lot of time to talk about these issues because it is so complex. Here's the thing, though. Uh, we have never really changed over the last 30 or 40 years the way that we deal with these problems. And as I've said before, we will then continue to uh, have these issues come up periodically. We really need to change the whole dynamic, the whole system. And this does go back to the penalty part of it goes back to what you were talking about uh, earlier about uh, surveying and uh, the facilities that uh, have a lot of deficiencies should be inspected more often. Uh, 46 deaths, uh, PennLife found 46 deaths that uh, where a uh, nursing facility may have been at fault or uh, been negligent. Self-reporting seems to be a big issue. Now, I'm not saying that uh, we don't know, or I don't know anyway, um, you know, how often, how accurate, we're getting the inaccurate information, but self-reporting by the facilities themselves would seem to be a real issue. Well, At least from the outsider's point of view. 
Uh, and once again, part of the problem you have to have self-reporting is because you have surveyors uh, not being used efficiently and effectively and in getting into uh, facilities that you know have uh, problems more often. Uh, 46 deaths are tragic. Uh, I have no idea how many of those 46 deaths uh, were the direct fault of the nursing facility or not the direct fault. It doesn't matter. Deaths are tragic. Uh, and I hate, hate to say it, but uh, when you're dealing with human beings, those type of issues will happen. We need to deal with them. We need to correct that. Uh, we need to uh, uh, do everything we can to eliminate uh, unexplained or preventable deaths. Uh, but part of the way that we're going to do that is use our resources uh, to oversee nursing facilities uh, in a more effective and efficient manner. Ron Barth is the president and CEO of Leading Edge PA. Ron, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Photographs of an overburdened horse being beaten went viral on social media and created a nationwide firestorm last week. The single horse was hauling a large wagon filled with watermelons. When the horse appeared to be having trouble pulling the wagon, a man beat the horse. It was later euthanized. Effort of police charged 20-year-old Marvin M. Sentinick with two counts of animal cruelty. One of the reasons this case has gotten so much attention is that Sentinick appeared to be Amish. And it brought up the issue of how Amish treat animals. Our guest during this portion of the program is Stephen Noltz, Senior Scholar for Anabaptist and Pietist Studies and Professor of History and Anabaptist Studies at Elizabethtown College, and Nicole Wilson, Director of Humane Law Enforcement with the Pennsylvania SPCA. Uh, thank both of you for being on the program today. Thanks. It's nice to be with you. This case obviously has gotten a lot of attention. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Before we go any further, uh, Stephen, no, Professor Newell, you, you said to me right off the bat when um, I asked you to appear on the program, you questioned whether the man arrested is Amish. Is mm -hmm. he? Yeah, no, uh, actually he's not. And uh, I also want to be clear that I don't think that changes any of that. It doesn't change the, the legal issues, or the ethical issues involved. But just from the you know, standpoint of accuracy in reporting, uh, the man involved was, was not Amish. He's a member of a um, an old order Mennonite uh, church. And again, that's not that's not to to um, change any of the issues involved, but uh, it does highlight the fact that when animals are involved, a lot of onlookers immediately uh, assume that the Amish are involved, and uh, in this case, they actually weren't. Okay, I know that uh, this seems like a simple question, but uh, if you can provide a, a brief and simple answer, what is the difference between Amish and Old Order Mennonite? Yeah. Well, uh, the two groups actually do bear a lot of uh, similarities. They use horse and buggy transportation on the road. Uh, they limit their use of technology in, in uh, key ways. They dress in um, plain and distinctive garb. Um, some of the, the theological differences uh, between them I don't think I'll, I'll go into here, but um, they are both uh, groups coming out of the Anabaptist tradition as Mennonites and Amish. Um, but um, the Old Order Mennonites would... Um, 
for example, um, worship in meeting houses in church buildings, whereas the Amish worship in homes. Uh, Amish men have beards. Uh, married Amish men have beards. Uh, older Mennonite men uh, are clean shaven. So there, I mean, there, there's some of those sort of uh, physical um, things that one can can observe. The styles of, of dress would be slightly different. There's a bit of a geographic difference. In Lancaster County, uh, there are about 35,000 uh, Amish folks uh, who live mostly east of Lancaster City, the southern part of Lancaster County, and then also in some pockets around Mannheim and Elizabethtown. Uh, Old Order Mennonites live in the northeast quadrant of the county, like New Holland to Ephrata and, and that area. Okay. Now, we're going to talk about uh, the attitude of the beliefs, I should say, of Old Order Mennonites, Amish toward animals in mm-hmm. just a moment. But I want to turn to Nicole Wilson, who is with the Pennsylvania SPCA. Nicole, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, okay. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you were so quiet before. I wanted to make sure that uh, you that that you were there. Now, one of the issues in this particular incident, uh, there was a witness who said that a police officer told her that the Amish, now as we find out, Old Order Mennonite, are subject to uh, different laws when it comes to animals. They're not uh, subjected to the same laws. Uh, when it comes to animals as other people. Police have said that that police officer did not say that. But getting back to that statement, is it accurate? No, it's clearly not accurate. Um, The laws of the Commonwealth um, are to be evenly applied to every um, citizen. And um, therefore, you know, we cannot be selective in our application of the law based upon... uh, religion, um, ethnicity, and the whole point is that the law is supposed to be blind. But there are exceptions, I understand, when it comes to farming, correct? So the exception under the statute um, is roots in our own um, agrarian background in Pennsylvania, and there is a normal agricultural exception in the statute surrounding animal cruelty. Um, you know, and the question about normal agricultural practice and the reason they made that exception out there is because as we transition to a community that is less um, farming-based, they don't want the sensibilities of um, people who may not understand a reason for a farming practice to come in and make an assumption about that farming practice, which is... um, perfectly acceptable um, from a veterinarian perspective and, in in this way, a legal perspective as well. But (laughs) that would not include beating a horse. No, and clearly, um, you know, questions of of beating or overburdening an animal um, would not fall in line with the normal agricultural exception. Um, You know, I can't say specifically about this case because I don't have all the facts of the case, but if somebody is is beating an animal, that is not considered normal agricultural practice. Um, Expecting a horse to pull um, a cart that would normally be um, appropriate for either two horses or a different sized horse um, would 
also not be normal agricultural practice and therefore not fall under that exception. Yeah, and uh, we're not, you know, during this portion of the program, uh, we're talking about uh, kind of the peripheral around this incident and not trying to uh, convict or, uh, you know, try the individual who was tried here, but, or excuse me, that has been arrested here. But one thing we can, we can say about it is from the photographs that we have seen um, in will point out that uh, effort of police had two counts of animal cruelty. One had to do with the beating of the horse. The other is just what you described, that there was a single horse, a large wagon that was meant for two horses to be carrying this, and it was a wagon full of watermelons, so the horse itself could probably not, uh, could not handle that load of, of the wagon as heavy as it was. Is that, talk about that, and when we talk about normal agricultural practices, I would imagine there has to be some kind of fine line there as to, or does the law say that, if um, there is a, a wagon that is designed, or a load that is designed for two horses, and one is, is hauling that load? I mean, who makes that decision? What does the law say about it? So, in, in some ways, it um, is not uh, expressly indicated in the law. Um, so there is some room for discretion. However, um, there are certain things that, that discretion is not really an issue for. And, and when you're talking about uh, doubling or tripling a load, or if you have an animal, you know, a horse that is injured and you're expecting it to pull a load, um, obviously those are situations where there is a clear indication of a violation. Um, now, when you have uh, a two-horse wagon being pulled by two horses, the exact weight that they can pull, there is no specific designation in that area. And that's where you would have individuals who are experts in this specific area of agriculture come in and, and lend recommendations and, and have guidelines. Police are not looking to cite people that may just need a point of education. Um, we are there to look at things and say, you know, this is a clear violation of the statute. A lot of the work that we as Humane Society police officers do is about education. However, there are certain things that you can't educate someone out of. You know, beating an animal is not something you can educate someone out of. Um, but if you had a slightly off um, a, a load that is slightly over or a situation that is um, where education would be helpful, then that's when we step in and provide them that information and education. And often a lot of what we do is connecting people who may not know with those individuals who have the experience and knowledge to provide them the basis for doing better. You said that uh, there are exceptions uh, to the law when it comes to uh, normal farming practices. Give me some examples. Um, so uh, when it comes to certain types of issues with regards to shelter of animals, um, you know, if a horse is out in the middle of, of a field actively plowing the field, obviously um, he's not going to have shelter at all times. Um, if you have a situation where you have um, – there are certain agricultural accepted practices when it comes to castration or um, tail docking – 
that may not be appropriate in domestic animals uh, when it comes to dogs and cats that are accepted farming practices um, based upon the physiological differences in the animals. Those types of things are, are what they're referring to when it comes to normal agricultural practice. In this case, um, and again, we, we're not, we don't want to talk too specifically because we don't know all the information. We only have those photographs uh, to go by. Uh, but because the uh, horse was used, you know, it was out on the road, uh, but it was hauling watermelons, that would be, you know, a lot of people look at that and say, well, that's part of normal agricultural practices. Is there a difference? Well, I, so if the cart had, if a cart is appropriately sized and the load that the specific wagon or cart has um, makes sense for the specific animal pulling it, there would be nothing wrong with a horse pulling a wagon. I mean, it it has been part of our history for for hundreds of years that we had animals pulling loads that. There is nothing inherently wrong with that. It is when you do it the correct way, it, it is perfectly fine. It is the issue of um, when people are not doing things properly, when they are expecting an animal to do more than they were ever physically capable of, that is where the line needs to be drawn. Our guest during this portion of the program, Nicole Wilson, Director of Humane Law Enforcement with the Pennsylvania SPCA, and Stephen Nolt, Senior Scholar for Anabaptist and Pietist Studies and Professor of History and Anabaptist Studies at Elizabethtown College. We're talking about, uh, well, what prompted this uh, conversation was the beating of the horse last week in Lancaster County, uh, where a man was charged two counts of animal cruelty. If you have a question or comment, one 800 7532 Send an email to Talk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Professor Nolan, I want to turn back to you now. Um, first of all, as you said earlier, that uh, the man who was charged here is Old Order Mennonite. Mm -hmm. um, is there a difference in beliefs between Old Order Mennonite and Amish when it comes to animals? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. Um, uh, one one practical difference in this area may be that, uh, frankly, a lot of Amish folks uh, in this area who would have had a uh, a load of watermelon of this size uh, probably would have uh, hired a uh, a non Amish neighbor in a truck to to uh, deliver the the uh, uh, watermelon. Um, but uh, in general, I don't think um, there's the, the the differences in their understanding and relationship to animals are are significantly different. All right. So what is that belief? Um, so uh, what I'm going to say here doesn't apply. I mean, I'm not trying to defend this particular situation because actually I think um, Amish and Old Order Mennonite folks who, who have heard about or hear about this situation are, um, you know, embarrassed or disgusted or, or um, uh, think it wasn't right as well. But in general, um, Old Order uh, Mennonite and Amish attitudes towards animals coming out of their rural and farming background um, are are not uh, shall we say are they're, they're not sentimental. They don't have a sentimental view of animals or nature. Um, they have pets that they that they love and and care about. Um, but um, animals are um, part of also part of um, the world of work. Uh, when you live in a rural area and grow up on a farm, um, you may see. Um, 
uh, hawks uh, killing mice. Uh, you see um, cows that have been killed by lightning. I mean, nature is is um, also it's a beautiful thing, but it's also sort of a dangerous thing. And uh, death is a part of uh, is a part of life. Uh, and that's not to say that someone. You know, should have should have um, done to this horse what happened. But uh, ideas about animals are not sentimentalized; they're fairly realistic. Uh, in some ways, I've found in my conversations with uh, Amish folks that their their um, their approach to animals is it actually quite a bit like um, you might find among large animal veterinarians. It's sort of a, a, a practical uh, approach to uh, animals, um, one that um, that that. Uh, doesn't have any any time for cruelty, but also is not sentimental. Okay, not sentimental, but doesn't have time for cruelty. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is that line drawn? Um, well, a lot of it, I suppose, would come out of out of uh, tradition, traditional practices. Um, uh, as we've just heard in terms of traditional rural practices, uh, that uh, a horse that is being used to plow a field, um, uh, that that is, you know, that's not. Cruelty. That is something that horses do. That's something that horses um, have have done. Um, uh, and so, uh, I mean, I guess maybe the, yeah. The, in terms of the word sentimental, I mean uh, that that horses um, would be, um, or I should say, a non-sentimental view. Horses um, are involved in in the work of the farm, and to work a horse uh, is not being cruel. For a non-Amish person, many people. Uh, a pet, a dog, mm-hmm. a cat is a member of the family. Mm-hmm. Do the Amish old order Mennonite look at it that way? Uh, you know, anecdotally, I would know um, folks in those communities who have pets that they uh, that they care about, and um, uh, tears are shed when uh, when when a longtime family pet uh, has died. Um, I I I think it would be unusual for. Um, a uh, an Amish or older Mennonite family, for example, to spend thousands of dollars on uh, surgery for a pet, for example, uh, or to get you know pet insurance, uh, uh, health insurance of the sort that that is becoming common in mainstream society. Um, but that doesn't mean that you know that they that they don't care about their pets. Is there a religious reason for that? Um, well, I mean, specific. I suppose specifically, I raised the question of of insurance. Uh, old order folks don't participate okay, well, in the, you know, commercial insurance, insurance, but as but, far as their belief uh, not being sentimental about animals. Um, I think it's yeah, it's probably a combination of both some uh, some uh, some religious and then some practical heritage rural life uh, traditions. Uh, I mean, religiously for the for old order folks coming out of of, of uh, the Bible and the the story of creation in in in, in uh, the book of Genesis, uh, individual people are uh, given the uh, responsibility to. Uh, be stewards of the earth, and that uh, for old order people includes um, managing um, plants and animals. Mm-hmm. Let's take a, a, a phone call, a couple phone calls here. We have, let's see, Heather in Carlisle. Heather, you're on the air. Hi, I just actually just left a rescue where we see these dogs thrown away, um, you know, over and over and over again. I'm really, I know we were talking about the horse, but I'm really tired of people going out and buying these animals from the Amish and the Mennonite that are stacked in cages, pooping on one another. They never get held. They never get hugged. All they basically are is breeding machines for puppies that are sold to these huge stores. They sell the puppies for $25 a piece. And then the the pet store sells them for eight to twelve hundred dollars each to make a profit off of these animals being abused. 
I'm tired of seeing it. Why don't we come up with a list, Miss SPCA, of good Amish people that sell good dogs, that take care of their dogs, that make sure that they're held and uh, treated like the family and aren't just breeding machines? How about we spend some time on that? Or else people stop buying these animals from the Amish. You all know where they come from. Stop pretending that you're doing a good thing by buying a $1,200 puppy. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, Nicole, I'll turn to you. Uh, you know, she does bring up the issue of, of dog breeding. And unfortunately, Lancaster County has a reputation of what are referred to as puppy mills, where what she described sometimes does happen. So what I need to clarify is in what we do, we enforce the cruelty code. Um, when it comes to kennel regulations in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, that is handled by the Bureau of Dog Law. So the Bureau of Dog Law handles inspections and enforcement of the kennel regulations, and we handle um, investigations as they pertain to animal cruelty, which is the violation of the criminal statute. Um, and again, we can only enforce the law as it is written currently and not necessarily how we would like it to be. So um, when it comes to animals in um, kennels, I think uh, a good percentage of the challenges right now is the transition that was made a number of years ago in the kennel regulations um, where a number of kennels did actually were compelled to go out of business to be closed, but now some of those are out there um, operating as unlicensed kennels, which mm. has been a challenge in locating them and, and finding out exactly where those places are currently. And I know that's a challenge for both the Bureau of Dog Law and our own organization. All right, let me turn back to Professor Nolte for just a, 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 a second, because we only have about 90 seconds left. The dog breeding by Amish old order, we do know that that happens. Mm -hmm. Why? I well, mean, I'm not asking you to defend the sure. practice, but yeah. why is it that uh, there's a higher percentage of Amish old order people doing this than none? Mm -hmm. um, well, I don't know if there's a higher percentage. Uh, I. Um, uh, I, I don't I don't have an answer for for, uh, for that um, um, I don't know that it's representative of um, of uh, the vast majority of Amish and older Mennonite folks in this area and I don't know that uh, most probably of them not would. but the reality is it happens right and uh, you know I guess what I'm getting at is how can that be justified mm -hmm. when there are dogs that are living in that condition those mm -hmm. conditions yeah uh, I don't know uh, there are there are this morning I uh, pulled off uh, my shelf a set of essays by a very well-known Amish minister died a few years ago near Narvon uh, he has a number of essays uh, in which he speaks to this to maybe not dog kennels but specifically to uh, how we as old order people as he would put it uh, we uh, treat our animals and as, as making a very strong point that animals as he says are flesh and blood like we are they have feelings of, of hunger and thirst and pain and fear and Jesus' words, uh, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy, apply to us in this situation. So this is the kind of thing that Amish uh, and older Mennonite leaders are not happy about. And I'm not sure for those who, who, um, who, who do it, I don't know how they justify it. I wish we had more time. Uh, Stephen Nolte is uh, the prof a professor of history and Anabaptist studies at Elizabethtown College. Nicole Wilson, director of humane law enforcement at the Pennsylvania SPCA. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me.